So we're going to continue where we left off last week. We've been talking about the identity crisis inside of the church today. And it's an understanding of who we are. And the biggest thing that we have to get a grasp on is who we are. I mean, when you understand who you are, it makes a big difference. It's kind of like if you grew up in a, a family that has a big name attached to it, there's certain stipulations, good and bad, that come with that. You know, it's kind of like if you grow up as a pastor's kid, whether you want to or not, there are expectations of a pastor's kid. And what are those? Don't be a brat. Like most people think that pastor kids are to be perfect. Fortunately for y'all, my kids have proved that's not true. So we've made it real simple. The bar's really low for them. But I mean, it's one of those things. It's like you just have these expectations attached to it. Has anybody ever made this term to you or said something along these lines? It's like, man, I can't believe you did that. I thought you were a Christian. Anybody ever made that statement to you? Yeah, I've had it made to me. And it's like, I'm not sure what just transpired has anything to do with Christianity. Let me tell you a story. Because I like stories. And I thought this was funny. So back in my insurance days, when I was selling insurance, you know, I was, I was a uh, youth pastor and I did all the music and stuff, but I, I had to, you know, make a living. And so I was selling insurance, which I know is the devil's playground, but be that as it may, is how I made a living. And, and uh, my district manager over our territory, we had some program going on, and I don't remember what the deal was, but he, he, he loaned me a thousand bucks to do something. And I got this bright idea. When I paid him back for it, I went to the bank and I got a thousand dollars worth of quarters. And I, because I thought that would be funny. And so I, I opened all the rolls and I laid them out on his desk. He wasn't there that day. And I wrote a note and said, I'm going to need a receipt for this. Well, he did not find it as funny as I did. And so he calls me up. He's like, I can't believe you just did this. I thought you were a Christian. And I'm like, What? He obviously was not very happy. I immediately went up to his office and cashed him in and took care of it for him. But it's like, what does that have to do with anything? But think about that. Anything that you do and you're known for being a Christian has a string attached to it. And if you do anything outside of what they perceive as the norm, then you're wrong. Now, there are things that we should and should not do, no question about it. But it is stuff like that that gets thrown around. In other words, if you have an opinion on anything political that goes against the narrative, but I thought you were a Christian, that's not very loving. They forget all the parts where Jesus wasn't very loving, right? For you, those listening at home, I put air quotes up, so, you know. Because he was loving. The thing is, is that we have changed the definitions of words. And so what we need to know is who are we? Because this is crucial. So when we look at this, let's just recap for a moment. The identity, when we're looking at the definition of it, goes like this. It is the collective aspect of a set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. What do we look like? The set of behavior or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognized as a member or group. What do they look like? And the quality or condition of being the same as something else. What do we look like? What do we sound like? What should we be doing? You know what's ironic, okay? America is known as one of the most generous nations in the world. Bar none. There is not a nation on this planet that will not give to a cause that is going on. We give money away all the time. But do you know what the average rate of giving inside the church, if you go across everything that calls itself a church, what percentage of income is given inside the church? Somebody take a guess. You say one. I heard something else. Jim says 4%. Anybody else? 15 I like the way you think. 20. 1.7. 1. 
That means, now there are some that give more, but that means there's an enormous amount that give less. And we talk about tithing. And tithing underneath a biblical thing is basically kind of the bare minimum. This is what we do, and there's a reason we do it and all of that. person doesn't have to. They choose to, but whatever. But you think about that. And the most generous nation in the world, the giving to the church is at 1.7%. Now, that doesn't make sense. That means that those outside of the church are giving enormously more. That's interesting to me, because what are the characteristics of somebody who calls himself a born-again believer? What does a Christian look like? What do they talk like? How does a Christian act in every phase of life? We've been looking at these questions, and when we look at this, we have to go back to the key verse here, 2 Corinthians 5. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That should mean something to us, because we're not what we were. The construct of giving away money and regaining wealth from that doesn't make any sense. Because if you give away money, what don't you have anymore? The money. But yet, from a biblical standpoint, it seems as if God's hand is upon this, and He is the one that increases your vats. It's almost as if we, we give, and yet God is the one who provides, so we don't worry about it, we just be obedient. This principle has trickled into a worldly system where you have non-Christians who have picked up on this tithing concept and said, we don't know how to explain it, but it seems as if we budget in 10% of our giving to charity and our sales and profitability increase every year. They don't know what to do with it. They just know, I know it's a Christian thing, but there's something to it. They won't give Jesus credit, but whatever. Like, there's a reason that we do that. There's also a reason that we abstain from certain things. Because... They're just not good for us. They're not necessary. If it's not oxygen, you don't need it to survive. And so when we begin to look at these, like, wait a minute. If I'm in Christ, I am new. All that old stuff is not me. That thing died. I have been raised with Christ. And we're going to build upon that today. So we came up with these three uh, definitions. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Big fancy term. Justification is when you are born again, it's just if you had never sinned in your life. You are made right with God. You can't get more right with God. You can't get less right with God. When you are now justified with God, you are at the point in, uh, uh, in history just like Adam and Eve were with God prior to the fall. Your relationship with God is almost identical to theirs. But what did you do to gain that fact? Nothing. What did they do to gain that fact? Nothing. It simply was. The good news for you is because you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. It doesn't fall out. It's not your car keys. It doesn't just disappear. Okay? I know sometimes we think it might, but it doesn't. God has done this for us. We receive this gift. Therefore, no matter what we do and how hard we try, it does not go away on its own. Then you come to the sanctification part. The sanctification is where we're becoming like God. We are now crucifying our flesh. We are now renewing our mind. Our words change. Our actions change. It's the sanctification process that you begin to see changes in the characteristic of an individual who has given their life to Christ. I have seen that for years. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I have watched people who are really, really rough around the edges is the nicest way I can say it who were not like that anymore. And I've told you a few of those stories. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit will do in the heart of a person who is chasing after Him. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit will do in the conviction of a person who would say, well, this just seems to be normal, but for some reason, I just don't want to do that anymore. And what I tell every young person that I'm discipling as that we go through this, I said, you're going to watch as you be continue to go forward in your walk with God, reading your word, praying, all the stuff that we tie into that kind of thing, you will, like, at some point, you'll look back six months 
and you'd be like, man, I'm not even desiring this stuff. It just goes away. It's not like you wake up one day and it just disappears for the most part. It's just like... So if you guys come next week, we're going to have a little stand-up. I want you to work on your material. We'll see what you're made of. That was good. That was good. If you've ever heard my son tell a joke, I'll apologize in advance because he's not a good storyteller. But he did get me with one. Uh, this was several months ago. But he's bad. I'll just preface that. But he, I came home from the office one day, and he's like, Dad, did you hear about the kidnapping at school? And I'm like, no. He's like, it's okay. He woke up. <laughs> Listen, he's not good, but he got me on that one. So, now I ruined his joke for him. Ah. Anyway, where were we? Not knock-knock jokes back there, okay? So, but we look at the glorification. That is when we are now literally our glorified bodies. It's just like Adam and Eve were. There, there was something unique about that. We are now with God forever. We, nothing changes. It's going to be wonderful. We're excited. But here we are today. Looking at the fact is, what should Christianity look like? In America, it looks one way. In China, it looks another. In America, what does it take to be a Christian? You have a pulse? That's about it. And even that, maybe not so much. But in China, what does it cost you to be a Christian? Your life. Your life. It costs you everything. You guys ever seen that video that went viral a few years ago? Um, they got in a shipment of Bibles, and this is the underground church, and they just ran to it, and they were grabbing, and they were hugging and crying and kissing them because they were so thrilled to just have the Word. They've heard it, they've, they've seen it, but nobody had one. Can you imagine that here? How many of these do you have sitting on a shelf at home? Dozens. Dozens. Literally on your phone, at your fingertips, anytime you want. How often do we pick it up? Not enough. But for them, it was life. It was everything. And so because we have it so easy here, we tend to take everything for granted. And so therefore, we will justify any behavior. But the reality is, is that in this country, we should be raising a stir. Because the church should be the thermostat, not the thermometer. We've been the thermometer for too long. Things start to get a little too out of hand, and then we start raising a ruckus. And the truth is, is we should be moving that thermostat where we want it to be. But the church today doesn't do what it should do. We were watching this video this morning. A guy named Jack Coe was an evangelist way back when. And he was talking about it. And what was he saying? He was talking about all this stuff that, you know, the church today doesn't look like it should. It's too worldly. It's too whatever. And we're thinking, back then, oh my goodness, didn't you guys just like square dance and pray? Is that all you all ever did? They'd be turning over in their grave if they had a TV today. I mean, they wouldn't even know how to act. And so here we are. We're like, what should the church look like? And the reality is, is it should look just like Jesus exampled it to be. We should be the mirrored image of Him. Why? Because we're His imagers. And the result of doing that will cost you what? Everything. 
It will cost you everything. It doesn't here. Because we will, we're willing to adjust what we believe to fit whatever narrative. Now, I showed you this guy last week. This is Diocletian. This guy here almost wiped out Christianity. Almost. He did everything he could. He was the only Roman uh, emperor to ever retire. As I said, most of them died either from disease, from too many women, uh, they were drinking too much, or at battle, either way, most of them died. He's the only one to retire, but he was well-respected because he went through and fixed everything. He fixed the roads, the sewers, the bathhouses. He made an environment in which people could just enjoy life in the flesh. It was wonderful, and the people liked it, and there was a problem that kept creeping up, and it was these followers of the way, and he just had enough. He knew that they'd been a nuisance in Rome for just decades. And he finally decided, I'm going to get rid of these guys. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to destroy their places of worship, the houses that they meet and the buildings that they meet. I'm going to get rid of their leaders. I'm going to jail them or kill them. And then I'm going to destroy their holy books. Because if I get rid of all three of those things, these people will cease to exist. And he tried. And as I said, the reason we do not have an entire manuscript of the scriptures today completed is because of him. Because they would tear out little portions and take it with them. And they would write it in letters, and they have all of these things that were going on here. And that the pastors were willingly giving up their lives. I told you about Smyrna, what happened with Polycarp. You got to pitch the incense. Oh, it's not a big deal. God will understand, and yet he tells you to be separated. Destroying the holy books. All of these things that were going on. Destroying. What happens to a church when the, when the uh, building is destroyed? Well, we'll meet when we get it fixed, right? That's what we talk. That's what we say. I mean, if the air conditioning went out, what would we do? Some of us would sweat. Some of us would stay home. Because we want to be comfortable. And believe me, I want to be comfortable. I like air conditioning. I am not, this is not anything like that man made it to heaven on his merit, whoever invented air conditioning. No matter what, I guarantee it. You see, the idea of God was that his people are always to be separated. And yet, we're too much like the world today. So let's look at this. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 53. It says, for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance. As you spoke by your servant Moses, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. This is God talking about the nation of Israel. He separated them. When we pick up Bible study on Wednesday nights here again uh, in the fall, is we're going to hammer on this, this separation, this new nation, this new people group, why that matters, why it's so important, understanding what was happening there. But what were they separated from? Well, they were separated from the debauchery that God hated. He hated the killing of the babies. Do you realize that they would kill their babies and sacrifice them to gods? Sacrifice one another. There were all these things that were going on. Most of Leviticus is dealing with these other nations. You be separate. Like, that's what they're doing. You do the opposite. There was something unique about them, even into the Sabbath keeping. Because what do we say today? Oh, man, we can't take a day off. We got to work, 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 and all of that. But there was a day that they had that was devoted to God. We call it Sunday, but realistically, that's not what it is. All it is to us is the day that we attend church. For them, it was a day that they did no ordinary work. It was a day in which they just devoted to God. They worshiped. They, they, they would have meals together and all of that. And so as we begin to look, we're like, okay, God, why did you choose to separate a nation? Why did that nation have to be separated? Couldn't you bring Messiah through any other way? Well, apparently he didn't want to, and apparently that's what he did. And so going forward, we're like, okay, well, how does that apply to us? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking. 
As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now let's stop here, because we read this last week. But I didn't get into this part. There was something, there was a separation inside of the nation of Israel. Because you had the nations separated, and they were divided into tribes. And what is he talking about here? A spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, who did that? The Levites. And they had their own list of rules that they had to follow, and had to obey, and had to cleanse more than the other guy. It had to be a part. They were the go-between. They were the ones that represented God to the people. So you had the separation of the nation, and then you had the separation of the people, and then there was one more that was super separated, and that was the high priest. And see, Peter is, is working off of this. You as living stones are built up into a spiritual house. What does that mean? We are the temple. You see, before to find God's presence, you went to the temple. That's where the presence was. Now, inside of us, we are the temple. And those sacrifices we make aren't physical, they're spiritual. But we're all priests. We are a holy priesthood who offers up spiritual sacrifices. And then here's the caveat that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, we want to offer a sacrifice of praise, but we want to do it our way. We're to be living sacrifices. What was the marker of a sacrifice? It was very specific. It wasn't just go grab any old animal. Go grab any old thing. It was very specific. Has that changed? It hasn't. But we've tried to change it. Let's go on. Verse 6. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had obtained mercy but now you have obtained mercy had not obtained mercy I think I said that wrong what are we talking about let's look at this again you're a chosen generation you're a royal priesthood the priest surrounding the king a holy nation his special people but who is he talking about he's talking about the people who once weren't a nation which would be whom everybody else there's really only one nation is Israel, and God was their king. But now, everybody is here, and now we have obtained mercy. You see, the difference is, is that the way we live our life is as a living sacrifice. It means there are certain things we say, there are certain things we do. We behave in certain situations. And because of that, it is what separates us from the rest of the world. We're not like them. We do not react the same way they do. When crisis comes, how does a believer act? Hopefully in faith. We watched it with y'all when Neil had his accident. Leslie had no choice but to stand on what she knew was true because everything else was not going well. 
But she had no choice. She fell back on what she knew was true. When you are faced in, with opposition of any kind, how do we react? Do we react in the flesh or do we react spiritually? Knowing that we are not in war with flesh and blood. But every principality, every power, every darkness, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That is how we're warring. When somebody falsely accuses you, what do you do? Do you stand up and defend yourself? No, that's not true, and let me tell you all the reasons why. Or do you just stand on what your character has laid out? Let me tell you a story, okay? This one hurt me bad. Years and years ago, we had somebody that I was very close to that, that attacked us and made up stories. I mean, it was a bad deal, and I'm not going to go into all the details. But, I mean, it, it hurt because we were close to these people, and the stories they began to make up were just ridiculous, and, you know, you're in a small town, word gets around pretty quick. And uh, my wife, now if you don't know, she's got a little Irish blood in her, okay? She was ready to do what the Irish do, and that's not grow potatoes, okay? <laughs> and I'm sitting in my office one day, I mean, and I'm talking, I'm, I'm hurt. And I'm just praying. I'm like, God, what do I do? Because everything they said was absolute lie, 100%. And I'm like, what do I do? You know, word's getting around. We've got a ministry here. What do we do? They said, keep your mouth shut. It's like, will you tell my wife that? <laughs> but the whole thing was, I'm like, man, Jesus is standing there, and they're making all these false accusations against him, and he said nothing. Why? Because they were all a lie. He didn't need to defend himself. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. So the next morning as I'm sitting in my office, I get a phone call from one of the pastors in town. And uh, this pastor had their, their son coming to our, our youth ministry and all of that. He says, hey, uh, you know, you may have heard these folks are coming to our church. And I was like, yeah, I heard. And he's like, and uh, you may realize I've heard a lot of stories here recently. And I said, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. And he's like, I'd like to get together and talk. And I'm like, here we go. It's where, he, you know, everything's getting around. And so he came to my office. He sat down. And he's like, listen. I've heard more about you in the last 72 hours than I ever have in my entire life. I, said, I have no doubt of that. He's like, I also want you to know that I don't believe a word of it. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Why is that? He's like, everything you're saying doesn't make sense to character what I know about you. I was like, that's good. So I just sat back and I said nothing. And slowly but surely, the lies began to stop because people started confronting them on it saying, that's not true. And they knew it wasn't true. And God took care of the whole situation. Didn't mean it didn't hurt. And believe me, it's not always easy to keep your mouth shut, right, Amy? But in this case, it was like I had nothing to defend myself against. I didn't need to say anything. I didn't do anything wrong. And I allowed the Lord to do that. And after that whole thing, everything that had gone on, I had somebody come up, and this sounds like I'm bragging. I'm not bragging. They said, I can't believe you kept your mouth shut through that whole thing. I said, well, I had nothing I needed to say. Because what I would have said probably wouldn't have been as nice as it needed to be. And they're like, I've just never seen anybody just be able to hold their character and just stand on the word like that. I'm like, well, I hope you never have to see it again. But the truth is, is there's a reason. In all of that, I had to go with what I knew. We have to stand on the word. We are separated individuals. We don't respond the same way. When the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket, the economy's tanking, wars are breaking out. What should we do? What did Jesus tell them? When you see these things, head on out. Don't freak out, just head out. Well, what do we do? We freak out. 
When crisis strikes in our lives, what do we do? We panic. And what we should do is pray. All right, Lord, I don't know how you're going to take care of this, but you just go right ahead and take care of it. You see, there is something that separates us from the rest of the world. And the problem is, is we're so much like the world today, you can't tell the difference. Because even the world will call themselves Christian today. Christianity has lost all meaning. It can be anything. You can believe whatever you want. You can worship whatever God you want. You know, we all worship the same God. He's just called by different names. This is the world we live in today. What do we do? If we were in the times of Diocletian, how would we act? Would there be so much out there against us that our lives would be on the line? If that happened in America today, how many people's lives would be on the line as a result of taking this firm stance for Christianity? We don't know, but we think it would be a pretty small percentage because we're too comfortable. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughter, says the Lord Almighty. Now stop there for a minute. Come out from among them and be separate. What if we actually took that stance today? We're going to come out from among them, and we're just going to be separate. And how do we be separate? Well, we just simply obey this. There's a guy that some of you guys know. He's been here before. His name is John George. He said back in the 80s, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and it says the church is going to become like Hollywood. And what do we see today? It was giving him a warning of the things that were to come. You see, come out from among them. What were we among? Dead people. But now we're new. Now we're alive. If you ever, okay, just, this is free information. If you died, and you're in a casket, and suddenly you wake up, don't stay in the casket. Get out. That's where the dead people are. You aren't dead people anymore. Jesus didn't say, Lazarus, hang out. Now look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now look at this. Now this is interesting. Because what do we know about justification? You can't cleanse yourself. But yet, here it is, we're supposed to cleanse ourselves. So what is this talking about? Not you being justified. This is you being sanctified. Cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the reverence of of God. Because of what he's done, I'm going to be this way. Let's look at another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more 
things that pertain to this life. If then you have judgments concerning these pertaining to this life, then do as you appoint those who are the least esteemed by the church to judge. I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to the law against brother and that before unbelievers. There's issues going on in the Corinthian church. And they were going to the law to settle matters that were taking place between two believers. And it's like, listen, you don't have anybody wise enough to judge between you two? Why are we going to unbelievers? Verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you to go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a short list. There's more. But then what does he say? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So you came out from that. You were just like that, and now you're going to go back to those people to judge these matters between you. You can't settle it. You're going to cheat one another. You're going to act like they act. You've got to go to the unrighteous to settle a matter. How about you allow the righteous to help you settle the matter? But the key here is all the different things that he said. You were that, but now you're not that. They have a new identity. See, these are identifications that you can put on somebody. What do you call somebody who steals? A thief. What do you call somebody who tells lies? A liar, those are identification. Those are markers. What do you call somebody who's been washed in the blood? Born again. It's an identifying marker. Those were you, now you're washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you were bought at a price. So therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay, so your body and your spirit belongs to whom? It belongs to God. Why is that? You see, we often overlook this. It says, you were bought at a price. What does that mean? During this time, people were still bought and sold. And they were purchased slaves from other master. And the issuing of a change of ownership for a slave was a bunch of paperwork. And Paul's reminding them that God purchased him from slavery to sin and death through sacrificial, sacrificial death to Jesus. So because of the price that was paid, you're no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer dead. You've been given new life. You now belong to God, not yourself. If I were to put an image up of what is worship in this country more than anything else, you know what it would be? A mirror. That's what it would be. Because that's what we worship. We don't want to be set apart. We want to get as close to that line without going over. And if for some reason there's debate on the going over part, we'll just justify it in our minds. We'll justify it in our speech. It's okay. God doesn't mind. You see, there is something unique. We were bought. We don't belong to us. You are not in control of your own destiny. It should be God. But He gives you the freedom to make your choices. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, For though I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died in vain. Now wait a minute. I have been crucified with Christ. You know that crucifixion, these are, these are cute statements that we make all the time. We don't even think about the sheer ramification of this. I literally was crucified with Christ. You realize that water baptism is a picture of that? The going into the grave and the rising again, just like Jesus did? I was crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's not me. That person died. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I'm now living in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That means I talk different. I do different. I look different. I act different. I respond differently. Because I am living my life in faith to Jesus. Because that guy, he's dead. That old guy, those things that some of you once were, but now you're justified, that dude over there is gone. This is the new me. The one purchased by the Father through the death of His Son. So therefore, I am not my own. I am His. And what He says goes. It's not my job to argue with Him. It's not my job to read the Bible and say, I don't know if that's really what He meant. I'll explain it to you. It's not my job to go through and say, you know, that word wasn't used back then, and now they've changed the words and the meanings and all of that. It is my my job to be obedient to Him because I was crucified with Him. He made me alive. How thankful you think Lazarus was? I mean, think about this. If Jesus had a flat tire after he raised Lazarus from the dead, you think he had to twist Lazarus on, hey, can you help me with this? Like there's a certain gratefulness that goes on. But we don't treat God that way. Think about what he has done for us. James chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight war and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace, therefore he says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humbles. So therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, purify your hearts, you double-minded, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now again, what are we talking about here? Well, it seems as if we're not our own. And it seems as if there are two people groups. There are now no longer Israel and the rest of the world. Now there are born-again believers and the rest of the world. Whose father is the devil. And so here we are, like, well, we shouldn't be like them. We shouldn't sound like them. We shouldn't do what they do. We should be separated, being obedient to God. And it's like, okay, yeah, what do we do? Verse 7, it says, submit to God. What does that mean? What is the word submission mean it's a word we don't like today because what do we want we want what we want and if somebody says well no you can't do that and here's why you're like oh don't tell me what i can't do we immediately rile up you don't believe it come hang out of my house watch my children they'll prove it to you we want what we want if there's one cookie in the cookie jar and two children one of them's getting it how many kids actually split the cookie without being told 
Not very many. Maybe yours do. Actually, the truth is, if there's one cookie and two children, my wife eats it, just so there's no fight. So... But we submit to God. What do we do? We resist the devil. And what happens? He will flee from you. Whose responsibility is all of this? It's yours. That means you have the choice. You can choose to submit or not submit. You can choose to resist or not resist. But he'll hang around if you'll let him. And a lot of times we do. Let's look at another one. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment. You love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. Now stop. So, You're my friends. This is Jesus talking. You're no longer my servants. You're my friends. Why? Because you know why I'm doing it. A servant is simply obedient to the command. A friend understands the reasoning of the command. And that is what Jesus is saying here. You are doing this. I have made you my friends because you're doing what I have told you to do. Why? You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you for one reason. Go and bear fruit. How much fruit are we bearing today as a church? The answer is not a lot. You see, we do all these things to make us feel good. Events are going to go all over in tons of churches today. Huge events. Blowing up the doors, like doing all this stuff to get people to come in. At Easter, I saw one church that was meeting in an auditorium, and they were giving away cash prizes to everybody who came in. Now, why were they doing that? Because if we get a bunch of people to come in, maybe they'll hear the gospel. That's true. Maybe they will. But what happens most of the time? They come in, we feel good we go about our business. We're in the business of feeling good about our actions. We never judge the fruit of it. Now, these people's heart might be in the right place. I disagree with the methods, but they might be trying to do good. So I'm not going to get on them too much about it. I can understand why they do it. But the thing is, is like, why are we bribing people to hear about the gospel? They don't want to hear about it. Think back to the rich man. Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Oh, sell everything you got. Yeah, that's not going to work for me. We'd be like, well, you don't have to do it today. Jesus didn't chase after him, neither should we. So, we got to love one another. What does that mean? Willingly giving up our lives. Let's go over here to verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you realize what strong words these are? You're not, we're trying to be loved by the world because we think maybe if we're just kind about it and stuff like that, they will just hear it and they'll see our lives and they're like, oh, I want something like that. You're going to, this this isn't red. Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hated me. They're going to hate you. Quit trying to make them love you. They're not going to love you. They're going to hate you if you stand on truth. See, this is the separation factor. We can muddy the water and just get as close as we can to that line without crossing over and be like, well, it's okay. I understand why you do it. Yeah, this is debated. You know, maybe it's this way. Or, or we can just draw a line and say, I'm like, well, don't argue with me. I didn't write it. God did. And the good news is for you is that he'll never force somebody into his heaven against their will. So if you want to reject him now, that's your choice. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. But do we lose sleep over it? Of course, because we have compassion in our heart for these people. 
But the reality is I have fulfilled my responsibility in sharing of this gospel. And you may hate me for it, but you know what? They hated Jesus. They killed him for it. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, do we face persecution here? Very minor. We do some. It's going to get worse. And there will be a separation of the sheep and the goats. It's going to be a separation of those who are playing church and those who are truly of the body of Christ. But the bottom line is, is persecution will come. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. So this is prophecy. Why did they hate Jesus? Because he called them out. He was truthful with them. And apparently that's what love looks like. You see, Jesus was so separated from the religious world that the religious world refused to recognize him. But he did all the works. He said all the right things. But they hated him anyway. We're trying to make friends with everybody. And the truth is, is the gospel separates. In our world today, honesty is called violence. Enabling delusion is called empathy, and expressing narcissism is called bravery. That's just the reality that we live in, guys. We have to stand on the Word. You do not have to defend a biblical stance because it stands on its own. You do not owe somebody an explanation of why God said we do things a certain way. God can explain that to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're almost done. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So are we all one? Yes, we are. Whether Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, have all been made to drink in the one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing, uh, where would be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if uh, they were all one member, that the, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor. And our presentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should be this, uh, have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Boy, I wish that were the true, but that's what it should be. Now look what it says, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Now think about this. We are the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body, right? Is that not what it is said? We're going to read in Ephesians here in a minute. We're going to see it again. If that is true, why is Jesus' body so schizophrenic and doing things that Jesus' body would have never had done and saying things that Jesus' mouth 
would have never had said. But that's the church today. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now understand, they, a Jewish man had a time of prayer. And every time he would be praying for these people. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. <clears throat> that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the seeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Now stop. So we see that he is praying that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, knowing who he is, what he does, and why. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. Why is he putting this out there? Because life was not grandioso in the church of Ephesus. These people were putting their lives on the line. This was the hope that they had. They didn't have the get your best life now. They had the try not to die today. And Paul is giving them hope, saying, listen, I know this is hard now, but we're looking at the promise that God has made. The promise that He has given us. And the good news is, is that when He was made alive, He was seated at the right hand. That is the place of authority. We've talked about that. Far above every principality and power and might and dominion and everything that is named. Not only in the age now, but in the age to come. So was there anything left off that list that Jesus is not head above seated at the right hand of the Father? No, He's not. It's all. Everything is underneath of Him. Every single thing. But we act like it's not. We say things with our mouths, but our actions just make our mouths liars. And what does he say? Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he's the head, we're the body. Do you get it? We are his body. Should his body be acting the way his body is acting today? No. But the head is not separated from it. It too is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we are to enact upon that. You see, the reason we have an identity crisis in the church today is because we don't want to accept His Word as true. We want to make it fit us to do things and justify it any old way that we want so that we can be comfortable. We don't want to swim against the current. It's so much easier to just go with the current. But yet, Paul's telling these believers in Ephesus, swim against the current. Because while it's tiring now, it will be worth it. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So this is who you were, but you're no longer this but once walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together 
with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So where are we seated? With Him. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. It is through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For good works, not by them. You see, everything that Jesus has done and did on this earth was an example to us. He is the head, we are the body. That means we are seated with Him and it's at a place of authority. That means we have responsibility. And yet, the Jesus that is sitting on the throne today doesn't know which way is up, doesn't know what gender he is, doesn't know what bathroom to use, he doesn't know what words to use and what he should consume and not consume. He doesn't know what to do in anything, and yet we wonder why we're so screwed up. Because the church today looks an awful lot like the world was 50 years ago. Because we continue to water down this message to make it more palatable. We continue to make examples of things and just be like, well, it's okay. There's a line. We didn't draw it. We just should stand on the other side of it. You don't have to justify the stand that we take, but we do. And because of that, and we get tired of the fight, we just finally say, okay, enough. Uh, Yeah, you can do that. It's okay. God loves you the way you are. He does love you the way you are. That's why he died, so you don't have to be the way that you are. We've got to get things right And it starts with understanding who we are. We are a new creation. And for some reason, in this newness of life that we have found, we want it to be as much like the old one as possible. That's not the standard that God has set. So we need to continue to rise up above this. Let's pray and get out of here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that the standard was set by you. Lord, I thank you that you're convicting our hearts of areas that we need to change. We repent of the things that we have just justified. We repent of the things that, that we have just allowed to go on in our, our houses, our work life, our friends' life, whatever, Lord. And instead of taking a stand, Lord, I pray that you convict our hearts to truly be separated as you has called us to. To be set apart. To not talk like them and act like the world, Lord, but to be separated for you that people, when they see us, They see you. When they hear us, they hear you. They hear the truth of the gospel. They hear the conviction that you have given us, Lord, and that passion and compassion that we have for people, Lord. And I thank you that as we continue to go around the world, Lord, that you have followed the word with signs following. That we are not a powerless people, but we have the authority that you have given us, seated next to you, with you, as your body at the right hand of the Father, above all principalities and powers and everything that is named, Lord that we will begin to walk in this authority and understand who you have made us to be, that you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, have a great rest of the holiday. Don't blow yourselves up. Don't burn your house down. Have a great week.